It's a good question, isn't it? Are you amazed? Are you amazed not only but why, by what Jesus has done, but also are you amazed by what Jesus has said? Are you amazed by the claims that he made about himself? Are you amazed by the words that Jesus described himself? Are you amazed? Because in the end, if we are not amazed by the Jesus of Scripture, the Jesus that is, then our Jesus is probably too small. Let me use an analogy to explain this. So think of it this way. It's more of an allegory. Think of it this way. You're about to go sailing. You're about to go on a big body of water. You're about to venture out, and you love being on the water. It's not that the water makes you nervous. It's not when you get out in the waves, all of a sudden, it starts tipping, and you turn 15 shades of purple. No, none of that. You like being out on the ocean. You like being out on a lake. Not only that, but you're going out on a good ship. You're going out on a sturdy ship. And yes, you're traveling with other men who love to be out in the water. In fact, some of them are seasoned, experienced fishermen. But most of all, you are going out with one of the most respected, renowned captains in your entire area. One of the most respected and renowned captains you've ever heard. So what is there to fear? Let's go out on the lake. Let's enjoy a nice time out on the water. But what starts out as a nice time out on the water quickly changes into a very scary situation. At first, the rain starts to come down. It begins as a drizzle. But then, as the sun sets, the storm's intensity rises. And this drizzle starts turning into a pouring rainstorm. But it's not just the clouds, it's also the wind upon the waves. And the boat starts to rock. Now, at first, you think to yourself, well, I've been on the ocean before. I've been out on the lake before. I know what it's like for a ship to start rocking. But no, it really starts to get scary. It starts to intensify. So much so that now the rain is so bad, you can't see your hand in front of your face. Now it's so bad that even these seasoned, experienced fishermen are starting to panic. They're starting to get filled with fear. Those waves that were so high are not just rocking the boat. Those waves are coming in the boat, and you've been out in the water to know that as soon as the water comes in the boat, you know that something bad is about to happen. So in the midst of all of this, you can barely see all of your fishermen friends are getting very, very nervous. Everyone thinks the ship's going down, and you remember, where's the captain? Where's the captain of the ship? And you go down into the stern of the ship, and there's the captain in the middle of the storm sleeping on a cushion. You wake the captain up and say, Captain, the ship's going down. We're all going to die. Don't you care? And then envision this. The captain leaves the stern of the ship, walks out to the bow, and then perhaps you think the captain's going to somehow navigate you through the storm and get you back to safe harbor. No, that's not what this captain does at all. The captain comes out to the bow of the ship and says to the wind and the waves, peace, be still. And then sure enough, the winds and the waves listen to this guy. 
what would your reaction be? What would your response be? Who is this man, right? Now, perhaps you're familiar with this allegory because, of course, it's based right out of Scripture. It's based in Mark chapter 4, where Jesus Christ is out on a boat with his disciples. And yes, in the middle of a life-threatening storm, he's asleep. The disciples wake him up and say, don't you care that we're about to die? Jesus rises up, speaks to the wind and the wave, and friends, the wind and the wave have no choice, no choice but to obey him. And the story goes in Mark chapter 4. The wind ceased, and all of a sudden there was a great calm. It went from a great storm to a great calm. And Jesus said to them, I love this. He says this often. Why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? They were all filled, as the gospel of Mark says, with great fear. And all the disciples said to each other, Who then is this? that even the wind and the waves obey him? It's a great question, isn't it? Who then is this Jesus Christ? You see, what we need to remember, and this is why I wanted to take this one verse in John 5 and build upon it. We need to remember that primarily Mark chapter 4, the story of the disciples being uh, overwhelmed and scared and filled with fear about a storm is not primarily about how Jesus is going to help you through the storms of life. It is about that. But primarily, what is it about? That Jesus has authority over creation. That Jesus is revealing his deity, his divinity, his authority. And that's why he has the audacity to look at his disciples and say, why were you so afraid? They had every right to be afraid. The storm was about to take the ship down, and Jesus, you're down having a nap. We thought we were going to die. You see, you understand this about this? Jesus knows exactly who he is. And that's why, as one pastor once said, and it's so right, it's so accurate, oftentimes we want to come to God and tell God how big our storm is. What we should do is tell the storm how big our God is. You see, a sleeping, slumbering Jesus is a small Jesus. This passage in Mark chapter 4 is not just about how God's going to get you through the storms. Friends, it's about how Jesus is bigger than the storms. And we can relate to that. Because oftentimes, when the trials in this life seem big, and the truth of God seems small, Don't be surprised when we are discouraged and downtrodden and even doubting our faith. When the circumstances around us and all the different problems swelling and and, and challenging us, when all those circumstances seem big like a mountain and our Savior seems small, don't be surprised when we are discouraged and downtrodden in our faith. This is why the Bible presents to you the Christ that is. Not the Christ of culture, the Christ of Scripture. Not the Christ that perhaps we perhaps occasionally want, but the Christ that is Jesus. It gives a vision of Jesus not just as a good teacher, not just as a moral example, not as a victim of his 
governments and religious oppressors. No, the truth from Old Testament to New has always been that the Christ, the anointed king, the Messiah would come and he would be not only the son of God, but God the son. Many of us, we need to return back to a really big Jesus. So to give an analogy of this, I'm going to tell you a story of one agnostic and one atheist. The agnostic is, an, is a person that you're familiar with, and his name is Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein, a friend of his, a colleague of his, Charles Misner, who also specialized in general relativity theory, knew Einstein and once wrote of Einstein and specifically wrote of Einstein's understanding of organized religion. Listen to this quote. Charles Misner, friend and colleague of Einstein, said this, I do not see the design of the universe. I, he says, I do see the design of the universe as essentially a religious question. He says, I see the design of the universe not just as theoretical or informational, but theological and religious. Misner continues, that is, one should have respect in awe for what they see in the universe. It's magnificent and shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, Misner continues, I believe that is why Einstein had so little use for organized religion. Although Einstein strikes me as a very religious man. Isn't that interesting? He must have looked at what all the religious people said about God and felt like they were blaspheming. Einstein had seen so much more majesty than they had ever imagined. And they were not talking about the real thing. My guess is that Einstein simply felt that religions he had run across did not have the proper respect for the author of the universe. Fascinating, right? Is this not the case? Is this not the truth? When we gaze upon the majesty of the universe and then we hear about how religious people talk about their faith, there is a huge impasse as if there's a great chasm between what religious culture presents as God and what God presents himself through creation. Theologians call that general revelation. We can get an understanding of God through his created order. But thank God that God has also given us special saving revelation through his word and through his son, Jesus Christ. Because while the agnostic Einstein, and maybe he came to saving faith later, but while he was agnostic, he struggled with a small faith, a small Jesus. There's another man who also struggled with a small Jesus. He was a converted atheist, and his name was C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, when he started to study the Gospels, when he started to study the Scriptures, he encountered the Christ that is. He encountered the bigness, the greatness, the majesty of Jesus and that's why in his most influential book, Mere Christianity, he says that we don't have the option of calling Jesus merely a good moral teacher. He says, in fact, if Jesus walks around claiming to be God, doing the things that only God can do, accepting the worship of others, forgiving sins, if Jesus used the names of God for himself and said he's equal with God, then great 
moral teacher is not an option. In fact, you have three. C.S. Lewis says, here are your options. Either he was a liar, and this is all the greatest deception ever hoisted upon civilization. It's history's greatest deception. That's your first option. The second option is he was a raving lunatic to walk around and claim to be God. Who does that? Not even the great pioneers of the other major religions in the world claim to do that. The third option is, in fact, he is not a liar. He's not a lunatic. And he's definitely not just a good moral teacher. He's, in fact, Lord. C.S. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity. A man who, has, who was merely a man, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher, in fact. He would either be a lunatic, and C.S. Lewis uses a little British humor here. He says Jesus would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man, Jesus, was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any of this patronizing nonsense about him being only a great moral teacher. Jesus has not left that option open to us. And he never intended to. So that's why when we come here to John chapter 5, it's a bookend between John chapter 1 that declared Jesus, the word of God, to be with God in the beginning, to be God, and to be the word that God spoke everything into existence. That's the theological truth. And the other bookend in the gospel of John is John chapter 20, where doubting Thomas becomes declaring Thomas, and he sees the wounds in the Hands and the side of Jesus, resurrected Christ. And he says of Jesus, my Lord and my what? God. Here in John chapter 5, these religious leaders, the Jewish religious establishment, hear Jesus equate himself with God. And yes, they understand the gravitas of his claims. We remember this, right? Jesus was not killed and crucified because of his miracles, because of his kindness, because he welcomed in the, the least and the, and the lost. No, it's because he claimed to not only be Messiah, but he claimed to be one with the Father. John 5, 18 says this, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. You know, the uh, scribes, the religious establishment, the Pharisees, they got a lot of stuff really, really, really wrong. But they got this right. They said that Jesus was making himself equal to God. And that's exactly what he was doing. You see, what they probably should have done is return back to the Old Testament that they were the guardians of. Return back to the Old Testament to understand, number one, the deity of of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, that Jesus is God. Because it's not just a New Testament truth. It's not just a gospel of John truth. It's a Bible truth. It's a Christian truth. It's a Judaic truth. In fact, they could have returned to the beginning of the Old Testament law and prophets, the beginning of the Torah, 
the beginning of the entire Bible, Genesis. And they could have heard with fresh ears what the Bible means when it talks about how God spoke everything into existence, spoke everything out of nothing. God spoke, the word was Christ, and his spirit hovered over the water. Three in one. Not only that, but when God created Adam and Eve, when he created man in his image, he didn't say, I'm going to create God or I'm going to create man in my image. He said, let us create man in, you guys are good, in our image. Who's the us and who's the our? He's not making us in the image of angels. No, we're made in the image of God. There's a plurality in the Godhead straight from the beginning of your Bible. They could have also turned to Isaiah chapter 7. Perhaps you don't know chapter and verse, but you know this truth. We say it every single Christmas. That the Messiah would come, this child born of a virgin, and the Lord himself will give you a sign. And what's the sign? The Lord himself. The virgin will conceive, and you shall call him Emmanuel, which means what, friends? God. God with us. And then you could have flipped just two chapters later and heard in Isaiah 9 about how a son would be given, all the governments would be upon his shoulders, and this son that was given would be called, yes, the Prince of Peace, yes, the Wonderful Counselor, but friends, listen, Everlasting God, Everlasting Father, and Mighty God. It's always been there. They could have returned back to Joshua, Joshua chapter 5, where they could have asked, who is this commander of the Lord's army that Joshua met right before the battle of Jericho. This commander of the Lord's army who told Joshua to take off his sandals because he's on holy ground. Where else did that happen? The burning bush, God is speaking and meeting with Moses and says, take off your sandals for where you're standing is holy ground. Joshua falls on his feet in reverence and worship. This commander of the Lord's army accepts his worship. That's a big no-no if he's just an angel. Who is this commander of the Lord's army? Or who is David's Lord in Psalm 110? David was the king of Israel. He had no Lord but the Lord. And yet here in Psalm 110, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool of your feet. David prophetically is speaking out about how a Lord, even from his own lineage, would be the Lord and with his Lord. Who is that Lord? David had no one above him except for God, and it would seem Jesus Christ. Also, you could turn to Daniel chapter 7, where we get a vision of how this son of man would come, and he would, he would as we see fulfilled in the book of Revelation, come with power and come with glory. Who is this man of Daniel 7? Everyone listen. The vision of Daniel is, I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven there came, one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, the same title that the New Testament describes to Jesus, was presented before him, and to him gave dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. Some translations say, worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Amazing. They could have also looked at all the different names and titles of the Old Testament that were applied to Jesus. Jesus is called God. 
Jesus is called the mighty God. Jesus is called the great God. God over all. Jehovah, Lord, the Lord of lords and the King of kings. There's no angel that are given those titles. You could also look at the divine attributes of God in the Old Testament that are ascribed to Jesus. He is described as omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, almighty and immutable. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was pre-existent before the first Christmas. Not only what others say about him, what even Jesus says about himself, how he describes himself. Jesus describes himself as one with the Father. He uses the name of God, I am, for himself. He says he's greater than Solomon, Israel's most successful king. He's greater than Jonah, greater than the temple itself, greater than the Sabbath itself. Jesus says he's in fact the fulfillment of the entire Bible, the law and the prophets. He's the fulfillment of the Passover. He's the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement. He's the fulfillment of Jubilee. In fact, Jesus says the kingdom of God is breaking forth into our world wherever he is. It's amazing. It's remarkable what Jesus says about himself revealing his deity. Jesus Christ is not only the Son of God, but God the Son. And also, number two, he's not only deity, he is divinity. Can we all say divinity? Divinity. What does divinity mean and how is it different than deity? Well, there are certain things that are divine, right? Like angels are divine, but they're not God. Heaven is a divine place because it's filled with the presence of God, but it's not God. The book is a divine book, but we don't worship it as God. You see, Jesus is not just divine, he is deity. And yes, he is the final revealer of God. So Jesus reveals God to us. How does he do that? Well, there's a multitude of different ways that we could study that. But let's look once again at the Gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 2, there is a paralytic who is lowered through a ceiling and dropped before Jesus. His friends are burdened for his fr- their friend who's paralyzed. As they lower the man before Jesus, Jesus does something remarkable and astounding. He says, son, your sins are forgiven you. And everyone loses their minds. Everyone freaks out because they say no one can forgive sins but God himself. And they're right. They're absolutely right. You see, what Jesus understood was that there was a paralysis deeper than this man's physical paralysis. He was not only paralyzed in his sin, he was dead in his sin. And Jesus understood this. He understood that he had the power to forgive sin. No one but God can do that. So what's our takeaway? Our takeaway is that every single time that we sin against God, every single time that we sin, period, is a sin against God. We always think that our sins are only done in a vacuum, only impacting the person that we sinned against. No, the reason why Jesus forgives this man of his sin is that every single time we deviate from God's good plan, it is a sin against God. So we all need to come as a paralytic to Christ and to find forgiveness. He, Jesus, is the divine revealer of God. I like how one author put it, in the face of Jesus Christ, we see the very face of God who is with us and for us and will never leave us, all what? In spite of us. 
in spite of our wanderings, our rebellion, and our sin. Which leads us to our last point. Jesus has the authority of God. Jesus acts as God. When we read the scriptures, we see Jesus sees things only God can see. Jesus hears things only God can hear. Jesus promises things only God can promise. And Jesus commands spiritual forces that only God can command. In fact, Jesus accomplishes what only God could accomplish. Gershom Mackin put it like this. Think of this. When the Bible says that Christ is God, it does not ask us to forget a single thing that has been said about the stupendous majesty of God. The Bible proclaims a really, really big God. Should God shrink when we're talking about Jesus? The answer is no. Explicitly, emphatically, no. Mackin continues, no, it asks us to remember every one of those things about the stupendous majesty of God in order that we might apply them all. To Jesus Christ. What's one aspect of authority I would love for us to ponder? It's what Jesus said in John 10, verse 17. For this reason, Jesus says, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. Jesus Christ, who not only can speak to the wind and the waves and be still, who can not only forgive sins, is now saying he has the power over life and death itself. That's authority. Friends, can I be very honest with us this morning? Okay, I can't. Okay, that's fine. (laughs) None of us are going to escape this ultimate reality that one day we will cease in this physical, mortal form, cease to exist. One day, Chris Durkin will breathe his last breath. His heart will stop beating. His mind will stop flickering. One day, one day, I'm going to die. Aren't you glad you came to church today? (laughs) It's one inescapable, unavoidable truth, that in taxes. We know that all of us, one day, are going to face that final fate. So does it make sense to avoid it at all costs? Does it make sense to never think on it, never ponder it? Thank God that the Bible teaches to it, and thank God even more for Jesus Christ, who has the power over it. You see what Jesus says here? He has the authority to lay down his life, to die on a cross. He also has the authority to lift it up again. Friends, if we are trusting, relying on the world's authority, on our authority, on a certain anti-Christ worldly authority, the end of that will be none of those have the power over life and death. If you're trusting in some tradition over and above God, if you're trusting in some cleric or clergyman's insights into religion over and above God, if you're trusting in the powers that be over and above God, what happens on that day? Where are all those clerics and traditions and rituals? Where are all the the powers of this world? Where are all the ideologies of that world going to be when you draw your last breath? No, in that moment, we need one who really has authority. Who not only had the authority to lay down his life, not only had the authority to raise it up again, but promises that all who trust in Christ 
will be raised to everlasting life. You see, friends, how prideful it is to think that I have the authority to raise a dead, decomposing, deceased body to life. How much hubris there is in thinking my good deeds, my moral actions, my religion could raise this deceased, decomposing, decrepit body to everlasting life. It is the height and the pinnacle of our moral deception. No, in the end, we need Christ. In the end, we need his deity, his divinity, his authority. One author put it like this. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Lord over history. He is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. Who is Jesus? He's the Lord over governments. He's the king of kings and the governments shall be upon his shoulders. Who is Jesus? He is the Lord over creation. He commanded the wind and the waves. Who is Jesus? He's the Lord over biology. He was born of a virgin. Who is Jesus? He is the Lord over physics. He ascended into heaven. Who is Jesus? He's the Lord over chemistry. He turned water into wine. Who is Jesus? He's the Lord over physiology, where he healed the leper, he healed the lame, he healed the deaf, and he healed the blind. Who is Jesus? He is the Lord over all creation. Even the winds and the waves obey him. Who is Jesus? He is the Lord over all religion. He said no one comes to the Father but through him. Jesus had no servants, yet they called him master. Jesus had no degree, yet they called him teacher. Jesus had no medicines, yet they called him healer. Jesus had no armies, yet angels obeyed him and demons feared him. Jesus committed no crime, yet they crucified him. Jesus was buried in a tomb and yet is alive today, risen and reigning forevermore. Are you amazed by Jesus Christ? Heavenly Father, we pray that you prepare our hearts for the table. But before we come to the table, this first Sunday of the month, I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would come to the cross. We would return to the Jesus that is. Some of us, God, because we're living in outright sin and defiance, we're not trusting in your goodness and we're not surrendering to your authority. So Lord Jesus, before we come to the table... Let us surrender. Let us trust. Let us believe that you know what's best for us. You being our God. You being our King. And let us surrender to your authority. Father, please forgive us. Pray this prayer to the Lord if this is you this morning. Forgive us. Fill us with your Spirit. And give us the grace and the strength to follow Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23.